Hi everyone, I'm Miles, and today we begin a new sermon series called King and Kingdom. Jesus is the Son of God, yes. He's the Messiah, the Savior of the world, yes. But he's also King, and not just a King, he is the King. So in this series, we're going to look at Jesus and ask, well, what sort of kingdom does he have? Jesus taught a lot about the kingdom of God and what it's like. And we'll ask, well, what's our place? What's our role within this kingdom? But today we're gonna to begin by looking at the kingship of Jesus. You know, when we get an understanding of Jesus as the king of kings, as our king, your king, then bowing the knee, following in the everyday just becomes the natural thing to do. So let's ask ourselves, what sort of king is Jesus? And I want to highlight four things today. His kingship, firstly, is specific and universal. There's a specificity to Jesus's kingship. He is king of the Jews. Psalm 2.6 says of him, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. In the Bible, in Genesis chapter nine, after the story of the flood, humanity gets a chance to start afresh. And Noah gives his second son, Shem, the legal birthright of ruling over his brothers. And Shem's heirs were known as Shemites, from which we get our word Semites, meaning Jews. So the Jews were divinely appointed to rule humanity through a king of the Jews. Abraham's father was a descendant of Shem and Jesus was a descendant of Abraham. And Jesus told a lot of parables about the kingdom of God. He tells one in Luke 19 and he begins it in verse 14 by saying there was a nobleman who went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then returned. That's unusual for someone to be made king of their land by going to a far away land to be appointed. I wonder whether this was Jesus having a dig at King Herod, who personally went away to cut a deal with the Romans and returned to Jerusalem as their puppet king. But Jesus is no puppet king. Through his stepfather, Joseph, Jesus was of the line of King David, a rightful heir to the throne in contrast to Herod. And Jesus was the seed of Abraham, who would come as king of the Jews to defeat evil. Now, interestingly, the first people to refer to Jesus as king of the Jews were Gentiles, non-Jews. The Magi, or wise men, who followed the star from the east at Jesus's birth, they went to Herod and said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And it was Pilate, another Gentile, who at the end of Jesus's life asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And then subsequently had a sign written above Jesus's head on the cross with the words of the Jews. And that sign was lit, written in all of the languages of the world for all to understand, Latin, Greek, and Semitic, that Jesus is king. He is king of kings. 
And it is to and through the Jewish king that God's kingdom is revealed and given to the whole world. And this links to the fact that whilst Jesus is king of the Jews, his kingship is also universal. Uh, Zechariah in Zechariah 14.9 calls Jesus king over the whole earth. And both Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.15 and John in Revelation 19.16, they both give him the title king of kings and lord of lords. This was a term that the Jews reserved exclusively for Yahweh, God himself, Hamelakim Melkei, king of kings. Jesus is not one king among many. He is king of kings. Kings over all time, king over all peoples, king over creation itself. He is your king. Now imagine if you were told today that the Yangdi Pertwang Agong was going to come and visit your home. You'd feel excited, right? We, we'd be humbled. We'd be in awe. We'd probably want to tidy and clean the home. But the amazing truth is Jesus, the King of Kings, comes not to your home to visit, but to your heart to live. So today, we can get our house in order, as it were, and invite the King of Kings into the home of your heart by his Holy Spirit. So Jesus' kingship is specific and universal. It's also humble and powerful. Jesus is humble in his kingship. In the Old Testament, Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus fulfilled these words about the messianic king with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the start of Holy Week, when he chose to enter not on a war horse or stallion, but on a humble, lowly donkey. What sort of humble king is this? You know, as if in the movie Aladdin, when Will Smith, the genie, magically conjures up an, an impressive parade in which Aladdin enters the city. It's said that Alexander the Great actually entered India triumphantly in a procession that began with 200 painted war elephants, followed by 200 painted camels, followed by 200 soldiers riding black horses, backwards for some reason, and then on a golden throne on an ivory chariot came Alexander, followed by 200 lions. If that was not enough, the heralds that uh, walked alongside the procession constantly proclaimed the words, I am the Lord of the universe. I conquered the world, now I will conquer the stars. I mean, talk about an ego problem. And what a contrast with Jesus's lowly triumphal entry, the one who made the universe, who casually, scripture says, he made the stars also. He chose a humble donkey. The irony about Alexander the Great is he made this entry and then just a couple of years later, he died, age 32. Everything gone, just like that. You see, many kings have aspired 
to be God. But only one king actually is God, Jesus. And in humility, not having to prove anything, the eternal king chose a stable for a nursery and the cross for a throne. The high king of heaven is also the most humble person ever to have walked the earth. In Philippians 2, uh, we get the earliest piece of church liturgy that we have. And, and it gives us the most remarkable words about this humble king of kings. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, says this of Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Wow, this humble king knows what it is to walk in your shoes, to live in our skin. He knows what we are made of but dust. You can relate to the king of kings who humbled himself. Uh, this is in contrast also with the greatest pretender of all would-be kings, the ancient serpent of old, the devil. In Isaiah 14, it records how Satan tried to elevate himself above the throne of God, but it says instead he was cast down from the heavens to the depths of the pit. This is because Jesus, yes, he's a humble king, but not only a humble king, He's also supremely powerful as well. Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain might be the longest serving monarch alive, but she has no actual executive power to govern. However, Jesus is not a mere figurehead monarch. He, ru he rules with divine executive power. In the Christian understanding of the universe, there's no dualism. There's no equal and opposite forces held in tension, good and evil alike, light and darkness, or yin and yang. No, Jesus's power needs no antithesis to define itself. His power may for a time on this earth be contested, but it's never compromised. Jesus is Christus victor, Christ the victor, the one who has defeated sin and the devil on the cross. I want to say to you right now, whatever you face today, Jesus is powerful enough to enable you to overcome. So you can request prayer today and see Jesus move in power in your life. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 24, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Jesus rules with power and humility. But his kingship is also one, thirdly, of justice and mercy. He is a king of justice and mercy. God is love and justice and mercy are the two sides to perfect love. Our sin produced a dilemma. I mean, how does a righteous, holy God respond to the problem of our sin? Justice demands that a penalty be paid. 
but mercy demands that compassion and leniency be shown. The answer was the cross of Jesus, where Jesus, God himself, the Son of God, paid the penalty for us, taking our sin upon himself and paying the ultimate price with his life so that we might live. Justice and mercy meet at the cross. It's the supreme demonstration of God's perfect love for us. And God then calls us to administer with love his justice here on earth. God is interested in social justice. Jesus began his ministry quoting from Isaiah 61 saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So social justice means serving those in need. That, that's why we serve many families in need through the HTBB Food Bank. But it also means things like racial justice. Racial justice is not just about condemning racism as evil, which it is, but it's also about promoting and embracing diversity. And why is diversity in the church a good thing? Well, firstly, it's a gift for the son. In Ephesians 3.10, it, it talks of the manifold or many varied wisdom of God as shown through the church. And the Greek word here for manifold is what theologians called a hapax legomenon. It's quite a mouthful. It means it only occurs once in the whole New Testament. But in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the exact same word that's used to describe Joseph's coat, Joseph's coat of manifold or many varied colors that his father gave him as a gift. And likewise, a diverse church is a beautiful gift to the son with which he clothes his body, the church. It's a beautiful social fabric woven together as a gift to make Jesus look good. Diversity in the church is also a reflection of the Trinity. In the Trinity, we find perfect unity in diversity. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God. Unity does not mean uniformity. And we are made in the image of God. And we're meant to reflect that unity in diversity, in the community that is the church. And in the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, diversity is not obliterated in heaven. Rather, we read it celebrated with every tribe, tongue, and ethnicity worshiping Jesus together in unity. A diverse church gives the world a glimpse of heaven. And also, it's hope for the world. The world has never been so divided. Rich versus poor, East versus West, Twitter tribe versus Twitter tribe. And a divided world desperately needs a united church. In spite of its diversity, united around Jesus to offer hope to the world of what could be, of what should be and what will be as the kingdom of God advances. So the kingship of Jesus is a beautiful thing. And finally, fourthly, it's now and 
eternal. Jesus's kingship and kingdom lasts forever. You know, the Roman Empire lasted 500 years. The Ottoman Empire lasted 700 years and then collapsed suddenly within just five weeks. The British Empire lasted 250 years and the Soviet Union for 70 years. All other earthly kingdoms come and go. But Jesus was king before time even began and will, re will remain king even after time ceases. Now, only a living king can rule. Hence, the devil tried to kill Jesus on at least three occasions, through Herod's slaughter of the innocents, when he tempted Jesus also to throw himself off the temple, and ultimately in Jerusalem at the cross. But in dying for us, Jesus won. He defeated the enemy and through his resurrection shows all heaven and earth that he is the king who rules for all eternity. So how do we respond to this eternal king of kings? Well, the first and the last reference to kings in the Bible give us a glimpse of how we should respond through worship. The first king we come across in the Bible is a guy called Melchizedek, who meets Abraham returning with bounty from war in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek is king of Salem. Salem later became Jerusalem. And the name Melchizedek means my king is righteous. And Salem means peace. So this king of righteousness was also the king of peace. Psalm 85.10 says, righteousness and peace kiss each other. And we see both these things in this mysterious Melchizedek, who then brings gifts of bread and wine to nourish the weary Abraham. And then we read Abraham does something surprising. He worships Melchizedek and gives him a tithe, a tenth of his plunder. Who is this Melchizedek? Was he a pre-incarnate version of Jesus? Well, he's certainly a prefiguring of Jesus. As it says in Hebrews 5, verse 6, Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You see, Jesus is king of peace. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of Jerusalem and he graces us with bread and wine through communion. And we respond with worship, giving him everything. And then the final reference to kings in the Bible is right at the very end in Revelation chapter 21, verse 24, when we read how the kings of the earth come to the city of God and bring their splendor into it to pay homage to Jesus, the King of Kings. As it's been said, at the very end of it all, there will only be five kings, four in a pack of cards and Jesus. So let us respond right now through worship. Yeah.